0: Hello and welcome to the Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds and today I'm with Carrie Lloyd. Carrie is a journalist, pastor, and author. Her most recent book, The Noble Renaissance, uh, hit shelves in June in the U.S. and I think actually the day we're recording this uh, just hit shelves in the U.K. as well. So Carrie, welcome to the program
1: thank you very much lovely to be on the show thanks for having me
0: yeah your book is called the noble renaissance so let's just start with this uh what does that obviously that term is important to the book it's the title of the book what does that term mean to you
1: well, I think I was so obsessed on for many years about the concept of nobility and building a noble character. What does it look like? Not just to have, a, not just to be a good person, but the people that excel beyond greatness. The William Wilberforces of the world, the Dr. Martin Luther Kings, these Mother Teresa's, the missionaries that is essentially sort of function on a gospel level of courage and boldness on unreasonable levels, and so. I became obsessed with nobility a few years ago, and I always wondered, especially in the kind of climate that we're in right now, not just the pandemic and, and the racism that we've been facing in America, but just the journey of opinions and so much cyber digital era. What does it look like for us to be um, courageous in character? And we stop talking about noble acts or nobility. We stop talking about integrity and some of the Some of the virtues that we talk about at people's funerals, but we don't necessarily adhere or revere as brilliant, important things to look at today as we might have done generations ago. And so I wanted to try and see if we can create a renaissance, a sort of revival again on building noble characters, because that, for me, is where the gospel really shows up, not with what we think or what we preach, but how we actually act on a day to day basis. And so I started studying nobility and noble people and looking into the history archives of moments that really floored us and inspired us to be better people.
0: Mm-hmm. What is that? I mean, I, I guess I kind of think when we think of the word noble, um, I, I kind of get the, the mental image of this you know, like old timey knight or someone <laughs> or you know something almost midi there's almost like a. I think especially paired with the word renaissance there's a, a medieval quality to that phrase uh, kind of harkens back to a different time a different way of of being when you say the word noble um like what qualities what character traits are you specifically thinking of
1: Well, that was the beauty of writing the book. I actually went on this navigation because, of course, especially in America, if they're hearing a British author write about nobility, they're like, oh, she's probably talking about the aristocracy. But actually, it's nothing to do with that. Essentially, it is about looking at a kingdom and a heavenly kingdom. And by that means, I guess, we are all heirs of a kingdom. But It actually looked at the virtues of noble character. A.W. Tozer would call it the excellence of moral beings. And so I looked at sort of seven different virtues that create a noble character, one of them being self-sacrifice, one of them being integrity, one of them being perseverance, another being courage, another being wisdom and so on and so forth. And as I wrote the book, I was really just tying in the patterns of what I was seeing recurring over and over again with noble characters, both in the Bible and within our history. Um, And from there, found these inspiring stories, really, of people that had created... Mark standards of excellent and excellence in moral character um, because I think we're losing that a little bit. I'm not suggesting that we're all becoming heathens, but I, w- I would say there is actually a part of us that thinks that it's just a, it's a gift that someone was given rather than an intentional choice to become excellent in our character. And I sometimes wonder whether we should be talking to children about this or what it looks like to be integral, to be honest, to be kind, to be self sacrificial. Um, rather than have a, a sort of... And it was a book t- specifically written towards, there I say it, the millennials, which I'm on the cusp of, and the Gen Zers, because they're all wanting to make an impact, but they have to understand the building of character that it takes in order to be impactful is actually quite extreme. Um, yeah.
0: I think it's this idea that... It's very aspirational. We see these great figures... Um, in the you know, political sphere or in the religious sphere, especially of generations ago. And we we're like, oh, I want to be like that. I want to invoke change like that. And it's very aspirational, but we don't really have a blueprint of how to get from where we are to no. that place. And so the, yeah. this book kind of, I think, helps us take a look at what, what did these, these people are still imperfect, of course, uh, but mm. what did they do in their lives to to reach this area? And um, I think that's so important because we kind of we kind of take these figures and we we already see them as like fully formed as who history has made them to be, and we don't consider yeah. the the growth that they've had in their lives. You know, they mm. were cho- they were children once as well. They were uh, yeah. and, they, and they were imperfect uh, in their adult lives and things that Absolutely. sometimes get overlooked. Yeah. Uh, so. There's also this sense of like nobility. It almost seems like it's it's un, untouchable. Unachievable. It's unachievable. Perfect, it's unachievable. It. Um, what is the sense of like making sure that there's also a realization that there's a humanness to this nobility mm. that it is attainable.
1: Well, that's one of the things I actually, I hoped that I was writing it from a student perspective in the sense that I was studying this subject. I wasn't coming from a, you know, listen to me, guys. This is how you do it. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't coming across as pompous myself. And one of the things that I actually look at is the likes of You know, if I'm labelling some of these people, I could feel the reader as I was writing. Yeah, but they did all of these things that were really incorrect and really unholy and we can't call them noble. What I wanted to propose is actually, well, I'm not looking for excellence on a level of perfectionism because perfectionism is actually a form of self-hatred. Excellence in the point of we recognise and take ownership of our mistakes. And we um, and essentially I think we're getting into a world now that is able to embrace on some level, the honesty of where we go wrong. But I think we've still got to create a safer environment for people that when they do fail, they're given the chance to rehabilitate. That's why I talk about the Me Too movement and working in the film industry back in the day, some of the experiences I had just as a female, looking at how do we respond when we've been unjustly treated as a woman in the Me Too movement? Well, I, I talk about the temptations of what I wanted to do, which was revenge and justice on some level. But then I also thought, well, what's the long term? The long term resolve would be to actually sit down with these men and explain this has been painful. So what are we going to do to change this for you? Not just for me, but for you. And so uh, part of the journey of these things is not, not I'm, I think it can be terrifying to talk about nobility because people are terrified to therefore get it wrong or will create more of a shame culture because they got it wrong or because they failed. But actually, it's the part of the courage is to try And part of courage will actually mean that we will get it wrong and likely to make more mistakes, even when we're being bold and courageous and acting in faith. But at least we tried. And if we can create a safer environment to get it wrong and to be graceful and kind and merciful and to not silently punish people for months or years on end. Then we can actually create a, a, a safer and more beautiful environment in order to start wanting to be courageous and excellence, um, but certainly not on a level of perfectionism. So I do talk about the importance of facing pain, because I think sometimes we can relive, it, we can all live, especially within the church, we can live, live on this sort of religious pride, um, uh, which makes it even more terrifying to make mistakes, and then we can't get to try out things or be honest and grow in the honesty of our vulnerability and our mistakes. So I actually talk to people within this book about embracing pain and actually being honest about it, confronting it. Um, I even talk about the woman at the well and how, you know, she'd had five husbands. She The one she was with currently wasn't she wasn't married to. And I don't think Jesus was trying to highlight that. Um, to shame her he was just trying to see if she was going to be honest and she was she said yes you're right I don't I don't I'm not married to the person I'm with right now and I think that was an exciting moment for Jesus because he goes great I can start to talk to you more about all these other things but if you were going to be telling me something I feel I should hear I felt like she was quite noble in that moment of being honest and I think how much of the times have we been so deeply hurt when we've just not been honest about our mistakes so nobility involves being honest in our mistakes too.
0: Yeah, it's a learning to see it as a process, and not just yes. as you go from zero to a hundred or you know, whatever the completed, you know, process yes. is. But there's this it's this path along the way. It's this journey that you go on to begin to learn and cultivate these habits and attitudes and behaviors of nobility and yes. the understanding that you're going to be imperfect as you as you go along. You know, for yourself obviously having you know written an entire book about it. This has been a theme in in your life. Um mm. how has this process uh how how have you applied it to to your life and how have you found yourself trying to cultivate those same
1: right uh, question. Behaviors? I think, I mean, I was terrified, of (coughs) course, writing about it. And in fact, I procrastinated about a year or two to write about it because I thought, oh, gosh, if I've written the book, I'm now going to have to do it myself.
0: (laughs) Right, yes.
1: (laughs) But but at the same time, I thought, well, I need to. That's the beauty of it, right, is how can I write a book that does make it accessible and possible without it feeling like striving to just be perfect? And so I add those things in the book. I think for me, I It helped me. It did transform me. This is the first book I wrote where I'm like, oh, it feels like it's transformed me inwardly in the research and the inspiration of these stories. But I think the main question I kept on asking when I was facing anything that could make me be ignoble or noble in the moment, I would ask, what's the noble choice? And back in the day, you know, we always do ask things like, you know, what would Jesus do in these moments? And I don't know whether I would do what Jesus would do, even if I were trying to answer that question, because I would justify it somehow or miscontextualize the subject just so it fit with my but if I think about noble and those seven virtues then I'll normally make the better choice normally the harder choice but the better choice for the long term and I'll, and I'll look back with less of a regret less of a um, a reaction and more of a response more of a decided response and so it feels like the book came out at a time where we're all reacting rather than responding and that that felt to me important that I have to look at myself in this point, and it keeps me accountable. I think there's nothing like teaching a subject in order to really learn it yourself. And so I, I would say I, I have to give myself. I've learned to be kinder to me, which is ironic. I thought I'd be tougher on myself after this, but I've actually been kinder to me and more compassionate um, because of seeking to understand people and asking more questions rather than blanket statements of assumptions which is what I used to do when I was in fear, you know, and courageous noble people ask more questions before they make a decision, before they make an opinion. Um, So in these tiny, beautiful stories that I would learn, it's very hard to write about noble people because a lot of the time they don't want to be interviewed. They don't talk about how they're noble (laughs) themselves. So I had to interview their friends that would normally give amazing accounts of of small interactions that would leave me changed, you know, and inspired. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I really like that that concept of having forming a response instead of a reaction because mm. that is, if if 2020 has taught us nothing, <laughs> it is it yeah. is um, that as a human race, on any any contentious issue, uh, mm. we, we are apt to. Go with our immediate reaction uh, rather than trying to develop an informed, you know, informed response. And that's yes. everything from areas and how we deal with the pandemic uh, and what we believe the severity of it is on racial reconciliation, on, mm. on any of these on any of these main issues. How how would you see it? And let's I'll, I think I'll, I'll pick the more difficult one. Uh, if, if we inserted if we inserted this concept of nobility into our discussions of racial reconciliation mm-hmm. um, in particular I'm thinking of um, of the murder of George Floyd and the protests that have resulted and um, the police brutality uh, that has been a part of that and even it just goes on you know Breonna Taylor uh, Jacob Blake from just a couple yes. of days ago and uh, yeah. it is un- so unfortunate that you, I could just keep naming names and um, If we we inserted this concept of nobility into Mm. the way we police, into the way we protest, into the way we talk about reconciliation, what do you Mm. think would change in those
1: conversations? I think we've seen sometimes glimpses of it, thanks to the media and thanks to social media. We've seen the moments of authorities kneeling in the middle of protests. We've seen um, chief police's of cities coming over and hugging those that are the most upset and angry. Um, it's, it's those that go lowest uh, and those that don't knee jerk with an opinion, but actually listen to, to the pain of what's going on. I think the danger can be that we react to the reactions and start commenting on on how we're responding in our anger rather than going, but they're in pain. So let's listen to them, you know. And so I think I think some of the most remarkable progressive momentums are down to people listening and listening and listening and gaining as much information from all sides as possible. Um, I think, you know, as a pastor, you know, we have a particular group of um, people that are, have a strong heart for the black community and so i've really been thankful to the pastors in my church who have sat down going tell us everything we need to know because we're white and we're in our 50s and we're naive <laughs> and and i was english so in in england i'm not suggesting we don't have racism but it's a different ball game different than what it is in america yeah. Very different culture. And I think, you know, when I was growing up, if there was anyone saying anything racist, we just considered them as idiotic and stupid. And in England, we have this sort of classism on being unintelligent. So if you're not intelligent, there's a problem with you. And so therefore, being racist was unintelligent. So it would already have a stigma in this country. Not to say it wasn't happening, but it wasn't cool to be unintelligent. So... Um, I think on some level, it's it, where does Noble come? No, where no, where does Noble come into it? Well, this was the beauty, I think, of Dr. Martin Luther King kneeling on Sel- Selma Bridge. Um, the beauty of watching these people not just vindicate and seek justice, but actually go, how do I actually lift you up in a moment that I'm actually about to want to tear you down? Does that make sense? And some of the greatest moments of anti-slavery, anti-racism, anything, anti-genocide, some of the greatest moments that we've seen in history has been marked by someone going, I could punch you in the face, (laughs) but I'm actually about to lift you up because I'm going to go above what you've done to hurt me and I'm actually going going to look in the long-term resolve of how we can find a happier medium. And I remember even William Wilberforce, he stopped gambling because he hated how... Uh, there is the response and the sadness that would take place when he would win in a, in a gambling game. And so he was looking at the response of what his actions were causing, regardless of whether he was justified with it or not. And from that, we start to look at the bigger picture. We look at the lifting up of the other person, even or even especially when they've hurt us. And so uh, that's what's been remarkable to me of my friends, my African-American friends, my my friends of many different racial diversities. They actually have this amazing ability at the moment of they, despite the hurt, despite the many names that we can call out, they they're sitting in with people that need to be educated, that need to be helped without without an edge of bitterness. And and with that, they've actually found some of the most remarkable fruit and remarkable unity that's taking place in cities. Um, it's tiny. It's small. It needs to get bigger. But I think if we all sit down and start having conversations and uh, we as white Caucasians have to go, OK, what do you need? How can we help you? And And what can we actually practically do in the in the midst of this crazy, you know, and go from there? I mean, and even especially, sorry, I'm going on about this a bit, but my, uh, you know, one of my friends who she's she's kind of like the voice for the black community in in Northern California. And I called her up during the week of George Floyd and I said to her, do you want would you like to just come over and have a cuddle and a glass of wine? And She went, yes, please. I said, is everyone asking you what they should do? (laughs) <laughs> how they should respond on social media what they should say next what's right what's wrong she went yeah I'm exhausted and I said I'm so sorry in a week that you're grieving we're now asking you to help us <laughs> when you actually just need to be helped so just come over have wine and cheese we don't have to talk about it at all if you don't want to she went yes please <laughs> so it was just that sort of encouragement of trying to trying to find what people need in the moment that they're hurting rather than trying to correct them fix them Or make them think the same way that we do because we have different lenses different perspectives different experiences yeah that's so good
0: that's so good um Mm. one of the there's there's a chapter in isaiah that i think kind of serves as a cornerstone of the book isaiah chapter 32 uh in Mm. in a verse in that um what kind of stood out about that chapter to you insofar as this noble idea of a noble renaissance
1: yeah, I mean, there's that lovely phrase of a noble man makes pl- noble plans, by noble plans he stands. I think we'd all like to think that we'll act nobly in a time of conflict, but if I think about some of the people that I've studied over this journey—biblical characters and people that you know follow the Bible—and people outside of the Bible—I mean, as an atheist in my twenties, um, I wasn't convinced by Christians to be honest with you, but my conversion was it had seeds planted when I was watching people of nobility when I was watching people do the unexpected or the most humble or the most self sacrificial thing for them um that's when I was enamored again by the gospel um, they were they were doing the unexpected and that's what was setting them apart and so when a noble man makes noble plans by noble plans, he stands. I knew within these particular and not many Christians were doing this, but the ones that were had spent every day intentionally choosing how to be noble or and not in a striving must earn, earn some favour from God. It was more this was deeply rooted in them as a conviction of their love for the world and other people. And so for me, um I was mesmerized by the likes of missionaries that had died to themselves in order to save other people. Um, And I'm not suggesting we all need to become missionaries in order to be noble. There are definitely things in our day that we can just choose on a very small part going. If that happens, then I hope that I would be like this. If a a pastor has a major moral failure, I hope they don't. I don't leave them in that moment. I hope I come and sit down and talk to them as a friend and go, what do you need and how can I help? Because obviously this is a tough time for you. (laughs) Um, So I think the intentionality that Isaiah mentions with that phrase, when we're making plans to be noble, then we're much more likely to succeed when we need to use them, if that makes sense. Uh, And so the study of it, the insurance of how do I want to respond nobly to things? I want to be able to respond in kindness when I've been hurt. I want to respond without manipulation when someone's being cruel. Um, I want to persevere rather than give up. (laughs) Um, Sometimes I'm about to lose it. So what do I do in those moments when everything's falling apart, like many people are facing right now? Um, And so can I guide myself? Can I learn things whilst I'm feeling strong enough to learn them? So when I'm feeling very weak, I don't have to pick out an option or rely on everyone else yeah. so something that I could have studied beforehand <laughs> yeah. so. it,
0: seems like, it seems like there is a big uh, component in, in the concept of nobility uh, in the idea of restoration mm. um, that a part of nobility is like we're, we can stand up against injustice but our mm. goal is to create a convert not a casualty yeah. Um how that then and I think that's what's lacking on the pro justice on, on, on mm-hmm. a lot of the a lot of the justice movements that we have seen in a lot of a lot of different areas. Uh there the idea of of conversion seems to have drifted away. Mm-hmm. And instead yeah. we're just dealing with we just wanna run through you. Um we don't care if you join us. Yeah. How, how do we? And, and, I, and I think that's kind of also a part of our. We're, we're kind of mirroring our politics as well, in which the idea of nobility has has gone out the window. Um, <laughs> but how do we? You know, I guess how we want to react very strongly, and yeah. instead, how do we change? How do we make the decision that we're going to instead react gently with nobility against these issues that are obviously, obviously uh, need to be addressed and need to be addressed? Well, let's
1: take let's take a case that we all might probably know. So let's take Harvey Weinstein for for a moment, Um, obviously working in the film industry. You know, I was aware that he would. Uh, Not necessarily on the scale that I'd learned, obviously, when it all came out, but I was aware that he was likely to put someone in the corner if he disagreed with them in a meeting. Um, So the the sort of dominance and power of that man was really quite frightening. And a lot of us um, as women might be aware of that doesn't feel right, that doesn't feel healthy. But in our own self-protection and fear, we made extreme responses, which was to say nothing at all. And then when we finally find our voice as women, now we're saying everything. We want to lock him in jail and uh, and punish him completely. Now, <clears throat> um, obviously the crimes that Harvey's been, that he's been committed for are heinous and horrific. Um, and I, I'm deeply saddened for, for what he's done. There's a part of, there's like this giddy girl in me though, that, that goes, my gosh, in the punishment, we lose complete hope for that person of their transformation. And yet in my personal experience, I've got a friend of mine that used to use prostitutes on a regular basis, was dealing meth and had the most extraordinary responses to um, just a lot of evil action. But somewhere in that journey... He met someone that was kind, that was willing to listen to him and go, why do you think you're doing what you're doing? Instead of me trying to punish you right now, I'm going to ask you the questions of why are you doing this? And with that, with the, you know, the kindness that led him to repentance, this guy is now saving so many women from sex trafficking and rescuing so many women from an, from an industry that he fully endorsed when he was younger. And so I really do believe in the transformation of sometimes the most evil acts. And I think if we could somehow find a way to to manage our own pain and I'm not suggesting we're not allowed to be angry. We're allowed to be angry. We're allowed to feel the injustice. And the the worst case would be to be completely passive and pretend it never happened. But I think there's also a resolve somewhere that goes, I'm going to sit down with you. And if you're willing to open up and listen, if you're willing to take ownership of some of this stuff. See, a lot of the times why people plead guilty is because they just don't. They know they're about to be thrown into a pit of vipers. And so no one feels safe enough to confess. (laughs) I mean, I think there is actually something to be said about the Catholic Church, which has the least suicide rate, not because it's just a, a shameful thing to do in the Catholic Church, but it's actually also involving the confessional box. There's a space, to be honest, but we haven't necessarily given enough space for the confessional movement to happen. And so if we can actually start creating a space for rehabilitation, not just to punish people in the Me Too movement or or extreme behaviours of rape, but if we can work on, but they got there for a reason. They did this for some inward inner healing that they desperately needed. They they either faced an awful lot of abuse themselves and they were enabled there over the years, and now they've become these monsters. But I do believe we can deliver people from their inner monster. If I didn't believe in that, I wouldn't be a pastor and I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. (laughs) We've got to create a space that's actually room to have those very uncomfortable conversations that I wouldn't want to be having in a room. But someone's got to. And so somehow we've got to stop throwing people off a cliff because they're being difficult (laughs) and actually welcome them into a room and go. "What, What you did was heinous and horrific. But I wonder why you did it. And if we start asking why do people do these things, we might get more answers and therefore more solutions. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so good. Um, what, and this is, I think, I get the feeling this is more than a book for you. Uh, this is a <laughs> whole, you know, this is a whole renaissance. This is kind of what you're, I think, almost what you're building your life around. So yeah. uh, beyond the book, what sort of projects have you personally been working on? um to sort of they're they're kind of built out of this this concept
1: oh i'm so glad you asked that i haven't been asked that yet and it's actually this is the stuff that i'm really excited about is um and obviously i'm excited about the book but i'm more about effective practical things that we can start doing i've um i've been very very passionate about how we bring up children in the sense of the more fatherlessness we see um the more uh devastating effects it has on people in adulthood um that's not to say that it's all it's all ownership on fathers, but I would suggest that the art of, um, if we look, for example, 88% of uh, victims of trafficking came from the foster care system. Um, 75% of those incarcerated in America came from this foster care system. 50% of those homeless in America came from the foster care system. There's a pattern here, and we've forgotten about the origins of childhood. And so at the moment, I'm working with a bunch of NGOs that are trying to do two things. One uh, is resolve the issues that we're having in the foster care system, i.e. make sure that the church are actually stepping up. And if we just had one family in every three congregations across America that actually adopted the 130,000 children that are ready to be adopted and legally can't go back to their own homes, we'd actually wipe out many of those statistics I just gave you in trafficking homelessness and mm-hmm. in um, and the effectiveness of family again. Um, we don't have that. It only requires 10 percent of American church to actually step up. And we're not doing that right now. And um, I'm like, oh, the mandate on our lives was to take care of the widows and the orphans. And I feel like they've been neglected. So we're trying to save all the slaves from trafficking and we're trying to save all the, save all the victims from child trafficking and sex trafficking. But actually, we could catch this problem upstream if we actually look at the orphans of America and across the world. And the second part of the project is to work on deinstitutionalizing orphanages. So We don't have orphanages in America. We have the foster care system to replace that. But we have many other orphanages around the world that have actually not helped the emotional trauma that children are going through by being taken away from their families. And actually, three out of four orphans in orphanages in the world actually have a living parent so we actually need to regulate um, the fundings that we're giving into with a good generosity. We have a good motivation, a good heart to, to donate to all these orphanages. But it's actually not resolving the problem long term. So we need to figure out a way of doing that. So that's the project I'm doing. Just a small project. on the huh? side. Yeah, just 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 trying to just solve a, a tiny number then, so. that I do on a Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's. Um, yeah. um...
0: That's wonderful. Um, it's really, you know adoption is is really close to my heart. I have two adopted it is? Chil- I have I have two adopted children um, oh, wow, domestically um, and we had we had attempted a, an international adoption that uh, well I you know this is this is my podcast. I can tell this story.
1: Um, yeah.
0: so several years ago, and um, some of you who are listening to this podcast uh, may already know aspects of this. Um, several years ago, uh, my wife and I tried to adopt internationally and it didn't work out, uh, but it did not work out because, um, the child was reclaimed from the orphanage, uh, by oh, his wow. parents. And it was a, there are a lot of factors to it and we were very sad, yeah. obviously yeah. for our loss, um, at the time yeah. and, and confused because how often does this happen? The answer is it doesn't, um, mm. And we just thought that was the end, and we didn't know why God had set us on this journey.
1: Um, mm. we,
0: we had felt really called to we, – we had no intention on adopting until we came across this particular case. And we felt very wow. strongly that God was calling us to this child, this specific child. And so in the aftermath of everything, we are just like, what, what was the purpose of this? Yeah. And um, we – We actually had got a communication from from the birth parents, um, saying we we found out uh, that you were the family that um, was going to adopt him, Um, and uh, can you help us? Wow! And we didn't know how genuine or sincere, you know, what they what was their intention or purpose behind it. Uh, but in the years since, we've developed a relationship with that family and have um, empowered them and taught them how to handle um, a, a, a child with their child's specific special needs. Wow! And it, wow. It's, such a, it's such a story of redemption that yeah. um, you know it didn't, it wasn't what we thought we were getting into. Yeah. And there's still that sense of loss and sadness, uh, mm-hmm. but. But to know that sense of, like, restoration and redemption is exactly what we were called to be a part of in that story. That's um, stunning. And, yeah. you know, and and it really made us want to, it, I, for me, it really changed my my outlook on what orphan care and adoption mm-hmm. need to look like. Uh, mm. To really begin to focus on what can we do to stop these children from becoming orphans in the first place yeah uh, what, what can we do to empower parents uh, whether that's through mm-hmm. education or uh, financial means or social programs that mm. can that can lead to them to be able to parent their own their own children um, yeah and I think when we start with that we really do we really do we, we do more than just make ourselves feel good um, yes and and we're actually getting to the root of the problem and, and absolving the, the problem itself. Uh, yes. That's, that's, it's such an important thing to be involved in. It's such an important thing to be doing. Uh, rather than just, And, again, that's the difference between a reaction and a response. Um, Absolutely. Re- reacting to the problem is just dealing with it what's there. A response to the problem yeah. is, why is this problem here? Who is being affected by it? How can we um, make it so that they are not affected by it? Or... And and so on. And, and so so I'm so thankful for your ministry and dealing with that and, oh, wow. and working with that. That's that's so great.
1: It but, feels like it's just the beginning and what what everyone is talking about trafficking at the moment. Obviously mm-hmm. it's a sort of hot trendy thing, dare I say. Mm-hmm. Not to suggesting that it doesn't have substance. Of course we've got to we've got to work and I was working and I'm still working in anti sex trafficking, but at the same time if we can catch this problem upstream, if we can resolve the trauma that these children are having by uh, you know, a lot of people actually I'm starting to talk to, you, they adopted internationally and they didn't know that the parents was even still living, you know. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even listening to your story, it's like, gosh, in some ways, both the child and you are protected from having that huge revelation much later down the line when the would have already been in your arms and in your hands and at your home. Um, the trauma of these people having to give back the children, knowing that, you know, they're, they're missing their biological children. They didn't even let, Biological parents didn't even know they were alive, mm-hmm. Um And the the amount of money that the Christian church is giving and pouring into orphanages therefore has exacerbated the things where some people are seeing it as a business, encouraging parents to give up their children. And now these children are dealing with emotional separation, wherein actually we can do eight to ten times more if we divert, not stop funding for orphans. They have Mm -hmm. to still be guided and taken care of. But if we can make that expertise more localised, take care of the parents that actually just need some some extra help with poverty, some extra help with um, just whatever they need their resources to be at home and also sort of reusing the orphanages to be able to start homing street children, to which in some current countries it's 12 to 1 in regards Mm -hmm. to street children to orphans. So um there's a lot to be done and and your restoration just that's a stunning story just on you t- taking care of the family that needed your help all along. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank so so. um uh,
0: yeah. well, let's uh let's wrap up with this. There's so many things to learn from this book, but if if you just had to pick one thing that you just really wanted to make sure that the reader came away with what's the one thing you wish someone would definitely take away from the noble renaissance
1: i would probably say it's down to that asking that question when we're facing hurt when we're facing a difficult moment or a challenge in our day to ask what's the noble choice will probably give us a very different answer to what would make me happy right now (laughs) and if we start asking what's the noble choice we'll probably come out with a very beautiful very loving answer and yeah. an action to follow suit yeah. mm.
0: that's very good all right well carrie i want to thank you for taking time to be on the podcast today it's been a thanks lovely, so much
1: for lovely, having me
0: it's a lovely conversation uh, thank you for everything that you're doing uh for mm-hmm. your book for your work in orphan mm-hmm. care uh for oh. your pastoral work it's it's such a blessing to have gotten to know you over the course of this past and you five minutes
1: <laughs> thank you so much
0: well, for thank having you. me Dr. Thank, you. thank you so much yeah yeah <laughs>